Hello, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, where I put the fit into fitna. We have mince pies, <laughs> sparkling grape juice and crackers, so it must be our Christmas forward slash end of year programme. Today we're casting a BDI over the news and events of 2009 and helping me are two men definitely not related to me by blood or marriage. It's Zahid Amanullah from the multi-award winning website and global Islamic force for good, altmuslim.com. How's it going, Zahid? I'm fine, alhamdulillah, yeah. And it's an encore for David Shariat Madari, deputy editor of the multi-award winning comment and analysis site Sif Belief. He is also the descendant of a long line of Iranian clerics. Hi. <laughs> I hope I can live up to that. Okay. David, what was your Muslim moment of 2009 and why? I think my Muslim moment actually has to be the Iranian elections, although it's not specifically a religious movement. It's, you know, a huge kind of outpouring of people power in the face of uh, a government which is seen to react less and less to people's demands and which is a religious government. You stole my Muslim moment. I mean, that <gasps> really... Took, Sorry. I mean, but I look at it a different way, actually, because um, I think that the... the the aspect of technology in this whole, you know, revolutionary aspect of what's going on in Iran, to me, was the most uh, amazing because it says so mm. much about the way the Muslim world could evolve. I mean, to me, the Muslim world has really been um, highlighted by the control of information by governments, by th- and things like that. And I've always seen, just being involved in media, that the release of this information and knowledge, the power to individuals, has the most potential to change society. Lots of things happened in 2009, an escalation in violence in Pakistan and Afghanistan, the uprising in Iran that David and Zahid have just been talking about, a crisis in Gaza and more. But we'll try and cover as much as we can, all in a free-flowing style, a stream of consciousness so fluid you can do your ablutions in it. There was a time when, if Muslims were unhappy with something, they would take to the streets burning stuff and battering people. (laughs) That makes us sound so barbaric. What a difference a few decades make. This year, there was a shift towards non-violent protests. Not very nice ones, admittedly, like the one in Luton accusing returning troops of murdering innocent Iraqis and face-off with far-right groups. Zahid, we've seen lots of Muslim protests and anti-Muslim protests this year. What's happening? Well, the protests that happened in Luton, really, that started off this whole controversy with uh, the extreme right uh, protesting and provoking a counter-reaction, really. Um, This is a cycle that we've all tried to avoid, um, but it's a cycle that works for the far right. Um, But I think the notable thing about this and uh, that I've uh, learned, uh, having actually went by the Harrow Mosque protest just this past weekend, uh, is that... um, Muslims in Britain learned from this experience, and although, you know, uh, the first, for example, the first Harrow Mosque protest where Muslims were um, sort of seen in the media as the ones that were, were rioting against these protesters, which numbered about a couple dozen or not even that, um, this year there's been enough talk about it in the Muslim community to, to, to not rise to that bait, and that actually happened in, in the Harrow protest this past weekend where Muslims did not show up. Even even the far right, I mean, even even uh, uh, Omaha Jaroon and Islam for UK and those people who usually show up for these kind of things, even they didn't show up. And the result was you had uh, maybe a dozen protesters from EDL and uh, many more anti, anti-fascist uh, demonstrators. But the Muslims were sort of on the sideline, not getting involved in that. So it became a societal debate rather than a you know, white British Muslims people versus side. Muslims, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think that has the greatest potential for diffusing this. You know, when Muslims don't take the bait, 
then these groups have lost their, you know, primary motivating arguments. David, do you think Muslims have learned the art of peaceful protest or at least engaging with hostile groups? Yeah, and I think maybe the forums for that kind of thing are not necessarily the streets, but they're, you know, the op-ed columns of... You know, the Guardian, paper, for example. <laughs> yes. But but there's a much obviously there's a there's an enormously lively blogosphere now, um, which Sarhead knows all about, um, where these debates are played out and different reactions to the kind of challenges that we see from the far right are um, are tested. Evidently, that that wasn't happening two decades ago, and it's probably a bit more of a release valve and uh, a bit more of a civilized forum for discussion. That's that's a really that's the new model for things, I think. Well, it is a long way from the fatwa and book burning sparked by the Rushdie affair. Let's hear some people talk about that rather ugly episode. First, Iqbal Sakrani, former General Secretary of the Muslim Council of Britain, recalls how outrage within the Muslim community developed. Once it became clear in terms of what the the text of the book is all about uh, and the contents, um, then, of course... The, the Muslim community across, particularly uh, organizations, came to know about it. And um, that was the time when they all came together. And this was the formation of the UK Action Committee on Islamic Affairs. Anger over Salman Rushdie's controversial book has united Britain's diverse Muslim community. Today, more than 5,000 demonstrators gathered in London to demand its withdrawal from sale. They say its fictional portrayal of their prophet Muhammad is both offensive and blasphemous. The message was conveyed to the publisher. There was no no reaction. You know, there was no no sort of uh, even acknowledgement by by the publishers. You know what they had done, uh, and the anger in the Muslim community grew. You know, with the time, we had a meeting about how we were going to organize the protest march, and uh, it was decided in a meeting that we would burn the book. On uh, that day, it was a bit windy, and uh, on the stage, we found it difficult to set light to the book. So we had to use paraffin, uh, soak the book in paraffin, and then, you know, set light to it. That is the place uh, across, across the road, the stage where it was burnt. There were about 1,500 to 2,000 people. People who were there could see the anger, genuine anger in, 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 in the eyes of the Muslim community against the publication of the book. It shows that this is the latest stage in a campaign that began with smears and vilifications and distortions of the book, which has escalated through all sorts of levels of violence. And frankly, uh, uh, I wish I'd written a more critical book. I mean, a religion, a religion that claims that is able to behave like this, religious leaders, let's say, who are able to behave like this, and, and then say that this is a religion which must be above any kind of whisper of criticism. I mean, that doesn't add up. It seems to me that, that, that Islamic fundamentalists could do with a little criticism right now. That was Salman Rushdie there, and before for him, Liaquat Hussain, who is the ex-president of the Bradford Council of Mosques. Zahid, I believe you have an interesting <laughs> anecdote to share with us. I do, actually. When about I, uh, Rushdie and book burning. I have family in Bradford, and uh, I, I, I was surprised, actually, the 20th anniversary of the, of the, um, uh, the beginning of this uh, controversy. I saw a big picture in The Guardian, I think, uh, of an iconic picture of a book of, the, of um, Satanic Verses being burned in Bradford. And one of my very close relatives was in the background of this picture. Now, I had actually come to know him since I moved to Britain as someone who is a very, very uh, tolerant guy. He's the kind of guy that, um, you know, we will go to a cricket uh, match and he'll be befriending the sort of white English guys next to him with beers, whatever. Uh, but just 
chatting them up and being, you know, really friendly with them. He's that kind of guy. Um, and I talk, uh, the more I got to know him, the more I got to understand that uh, him and a lot of other people have come a long way since those days. And th those days, that was really the first instance of something uh, that really struck to the emotional attachment that a lot of Muslims have to Islam in a public way. And, you know, people reacted and they saw the repercussions of that. And I think, again, we learned from it. You know, uh, when this other book, Jewel of Medina, came out last year, there was none of the same kind of reaction because I think Muslims... Didn't someone's house get firebombed? Yes, that's true. So, yeah, that was a no, reaction. That, that, no, that's was true. A small matter of but, yeah, but, just, but again, yeah. it was an isolated incident. There weren't people in the streets. There weren't people... It wasn't a Danish cartoons thing. It wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't even a public... Uh, uh, demand so by the bar Muslims has to, been raised. Yeah, the so bar it has been went raised. from like mass protest and book burning to just one fire bombing. People did express their opinion, but there was not the sort of uh, demand that free speech be curtailed. David, I have a sweeping question for you, but I'm uh -oh. confident that with your clerical heritage, you can rise to the occasion. What effect did the Rushdie affair have on Muslims living in Britain? You can either have that from the Muslim community looking out or from people's perception of Muslims in Britain. You can well, take I think, your point. Uh, well, the second point, it was hugely important, people's perceptions of Muslims in Britain. I mean, it was the first time the idea of the angry, radical Muslim had, uh, had uh, you know, come across most people's, most non-Muslims' radars. So, yeah, it was a, it was a huge moment. It, in a way, it's, it was the kind of be beginning of the, of the culture wars, if you like, that we've seen since then, and which obviously was stoked enormously in the aftermath of September the 11th and 7-7 uh, and so on. But I think, you know, I mean, it was a, a pivotal moment, and, it, and, and that has as much to do with the effect it had on people's perceptions of Islam as it did uh, on, on, you know, Muslims themselves, which you might have more of an insight into having grown up in a in slightly more yeah. orthodox Muslim <laughs> family. Well, um, I remember borrowing a copy of the book off my English teacher and then reading it under my duvet with a flashlight <laughs> and thinking, this is a really boring book. I don't really enjoy this book. And I read the naughty bits. I mean, they, you know, I was given the page numbers and I skipped to them and I was like, why would you do that? I mean, not in a kind of, oh, that's a shocking, why sure. would you, you do that? You the page it, numbers. Oh, my what? English teacher, no, Miss Nolan, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but I just said, I want to read it and, you know, I'm really interested to know why people are getting so upset about it. And my dad was very cross, but... He hadn't read the book, and that was the thing. There were lots and lots of people who were very angry but hadn't read the book yeah, and wouldn't yeah. even consider buying the book and or reading the, the book point or about borrowing information it from a library. Again. I mean, now there's so much more information. There's so many more outlets. There are so many more opinions, and it's very easy to read an excerpt of the Sanic yeah. Verses online. And I think there was this bottleneck that we had then of information, which, which, which kind of kept the pressure on and made things more inflammatory somehow. Uh, absolutely. It was hugely damaging. It was hugely, it was hugely damaging. damaging. I think people I... saw exactly where that kind of action would lead. You know, uh, if we don't approve of bombing other people, you know, people bomb us and we, we don't, you know, it's, it, it, we have to look at how to react to these things. Do you think it was the first time Muslims became really Aware visible of... in Britain? I think and, it... and what an unfortunate way to kind of step onto yeah, the stage. Yeah, I'm Muslim. I bomb stuff. It was, uh, for me, me, it was the first time I was made to feel aware that I wasn't just a Pakistani. I was no longer Asian. I was Muslim, and mm. Muslim was different to being Asian. And somehow, if you were Asian, you were more likely to be Hindu or Sikh. And Hindu and Sikh was good, and Muslim was bad. And that was the first time I thought, okay, there is something different about me. Mm -hmm. There are people who are connected to me in some way who do crazy things like this, and it makes my life more difficult, and I don't really well, like that. And it's just stayed like that for 20 years, basically. <laughs> well, the irony is a lot of Muslims who came to the West didn't come to an ex express a Muslim identity. They no. came to express their cultural identity. Sure. Yeah. I think it's time to pull a cracker.
I well, think so too. Okay, okay, we've crackers got crackers the on the table, juice. right? They're very little crackers, so you can have That's to right. reach across. Okay. No expense spared, eh? Oh, sh- oh. Hey. <laughs> okay. And if there's a hat in there, you have to cover your head. No, there's not that a, one. I think a, it's a paper oh, hat. It's a pig. <laughs> nice. Seriously, it's Who a got pig. These it's a little plastic pig. Oh, that's quite cute. Okay, I want some. Oh, I haven't got anything. It's What's a that? dog. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. It's like Monopoly pieces. You can have the dog. I don't know what you're supposed to do with it. Is this, are these like it? ultra haram crackers or something? Yeah, they are. No, they're not that's, ultra haram crackers. Cute. You're listening to Islamophonic with me, Riaz Atbat, and my studio guests, Zahid Amanullah and David Shariat Madari. People who protest are exercising their right to freedom of expression and freedom of speech. But does it cut both ways or can you only have freedom of speech if it doesn't upset Muslims? I have nothing to do with violence. I am no extremist. I'm a politician who is democratically um, elected. Of course, um, when it comes, what is my message? My main message is that I have a problem with the Islamization of our societies. Let me tell you first that I have nothing against people. Not individuals, not groups. I have nothing against Muslims. I know the majority of Muslims in our society are law-abiding people, and there's nothing wrong with that. I have a problem with the Islamic ideology, the Islamic culture, because I believe that the more Islam we get in our free societies, the less freedom um, we will get. And I want to fight for all those what the Muslims call kafirs, all those non-Muslims, all those women, all those apostates, all those renegades, all those homosexuals that will pay a high price when Islam would become more dominant in our society. Today is a victory for the freedom of speech and I hope once again that uh, the UK government will never, never turn back somebody um, for political reasons because they don't like what they are saying. Um, I love the United Kingdom. I applaud the UK independent um, court system that they made this decision and um, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Zahid, is there an argument for banning someone's entry to the UK if it causes civil unrest? Um, well, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, Geert Wilders was eventually led into the UK and it didn't lead it to mass protests and, and violence. Um, so it's hard to say that, you know, it would always be the case. Um, I'm actually very strongly in support of of allowing people to speak even though their views are offensive. Um, I think, you know, it's wherever, you know, with this kind of media age we live in, with the globalization of of media, with the internet, there will always be offensive voices that are, that can reach you no matter where you are. And it's, it's, it's sort of silly to start to keep plugging the dike with your fingers. You're going to run out of fingers and it'll just overwhelm you. What should we do about Islam for UK, David? Platform or no platform? Mm, you always give me the easy questions, don't you, Because it's it's because of your Iranian stock, <laughs> your Iranian Ayatollah stock. You have to be very wary of putting strictures on free speech. Mm. I, I think unless there's a question of incitement to violence, which the law already kind of um, allows for, I, I'd be very kind of uh, hesitant to, to ban anybody. Giving a platform, it's a slightly more difficult question because... It's a proactive you, thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The media has think, to provide the platform. Apparently, after the, um, after the Luton thing, I was away on a foreign trip or something. After the Luton thing, um, Islam for UK got a huge amount of publicity and, you know, newspapers went out of their way to try and find that chap and Jim Chowdhury. Yeah. They went out of their way to find him and talk to him and, and suddenly he was all over the papers and people were very angry about it, saying, why are you giving him a platform? Sure. Well, I mean, well, interestingly, it's not always Muslims that feel those kind of effects. I think that with the church group in America that picket soldiers' funerals... God hates fags. That's the one. 
Um, what are they actually? They called? are a tiny. They're a one family, and they Felt. they they Felt, des- yeah. they they designate themselves as a church, and mm. they get worldwide publicity mm. every time. So the more outrageous you are, the more provocative, the more column inches you're going to get, and I suppose that's a fact of of the media. Um, but it's 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 kind of dispiriting when you see Islam for UK or their previous incarnation, you know, splashed across the. I, I agree, and I think on some level you, you you can't just go to the media and say stop going to these people because mm. it, they're, they're just attracted like magnets to these people. Thanks. Uh, sorry, <laughs> it, it's true. But I mean, I think the important thing that can can, can be done is that uh, it's contextualized, that there are voices yeah. from the majority that we know disapprove of this that are given the space uh, to express their views. And actually that... You know, it's like, for example, there was this article in a rival newspaper uh, when Geert Walters came to the UK uh, and, you know, show, you know, talking about his entry into the airport and, and entry into Britain. The only Muslims that they interviewed for that were Anjum Chowdhury and Islam for UK people who were there at the airport protesting all 10 of them. Now, this is the only Muslim rebuttal, essentially, to this person coming into the UK after all the talk. Um, which to me was grossly unfair because it didn't put the the Muslim reaction to context, which was mostly Muslims didn't care. Yeah, Geert Wilder sort of leads us on to our next discussion about Islam and Europe. In the last 30 years, the Muslim population of Great Britain rose from 82,000 to 2.5 million, a 30-fold increase. There are over 1,000 mosques, many of them former churches. In the Netherlands... The Muslim Demographics video has racked up 11 million views on YouTube, and even though its claims have been blown apart, it's clearly feeding on something. Zahid, why is this video so popular, or would you like to eat your mince pie? And I will ask the question (laughs) of David. Do you want me to ask David the question? David, why is this video so popular? Well, it's feeding on fear. I mean, it's it's just the kind of... um, the same kind of thing that Stop Islamization of Europe, this organisation, feeds on, which is the idea that somehow, sitting in your... Sitting in your sitting room with your Xbox and your TV, you're going to be swamped by Islam if you're a non-Muslim. Um, <laughs> which, you know, Do we come pouring kind of in through absurd. the letterbox? Well, exactly. You have to. All the calls to prayer will come, you know, um, blaring down your street. Yeah. Um, again, the internet is is a kind of force for good in one respect, and also a massive spreader of disinformation as well. Or should that be misinformation? I'm not sure. I mean, the cra- uh, the statistics are crazy because it says that I mean, it amounts to sort of every woman having 25 babies in her lifetime. Mm. Now, I'm 34. I haven't even <laughs> had one. <laughs> so that means I have to get busy over the next couple of years. But it's also years. a clarion call for um, non-Muslims to reproduce as fast as possible to counter... Um, the Islamization of Europe. Exactly. It won't happen. I mean, the trends happen, you know, for different reasons. They're not going to reverse because... You know, <laughs> white, white Europeans <laughs> want, to, want to match the birth rate of Muslims. Yeah. And, and you know, even that birth rate issue, I mean, it's decreasing steadily. I mean, birth rate is linked to economic status mm. and things like that. It's, you know, it's, it's not linked to religion. It's not linked to mm. these other factors. I've always said that this is the biggest analogy that you can have with immigration mm. in Europe. It's not a religious one. It's a cultural one. Mm. And the analogy in America is, is Latino Amer- immigrants to America. It's the same debate when you look at it on that level. But you see the way it's changing society. Mm. Um, not not for the for the worse, for the better, in, in, in my view, because it is, a, is an accurate reflection of the evolving state of a, of a nation. Mm. I think the fears of Islamification of Europe have had something to do with moves to ban the burqa in France yeah. and 
the vote on banning minaret building in Switzerland. It's quite um, the opposite, isn't it? I mean, that's not Islamization, that's anti-Islamization. It is, it is. But we're going to hear a clip from Micheline Kalmi Ray, who's a Swiss foreign minister. I interpret, I interpret this result as a reaction of uh, fear towards uh, everything who's coming from abroad. Uh, it's not a, a rejection of the Muslim community in Switzerland because uh, the Muslim community is well integrated and uh, uh, will be able to continue to pray every every Friday. I was absolutely surprised because I, I thought that that would never pass. I was actually quite disgusted by the result. Um, I think it's against the fundamental values of freedom of speech. And uh, I'm actually quite ashamed to be Swiss this morning. <laughs> I'm a bit sad. I think that uh, everyone uh, should have the right to practice their own religion and that Switzerland should be worth of its reputation as a neutral country. A mix of Swiss reaction to the new law there. Reading between the lines, Zahid, what did the result of that vote tell you? It tells me that the the mistrust um, of Muslims in Europe is far more deep-seated than we had anticipated. Um, And and it's an emotional thing. It's not, you know, I mean, legally, I'm not sure how far the span is going to go, but emotionally we can tell that voters citizens of Europe have do have a, a, an unease about their Muslim neighbors. And this may speak to the efficacy of misinformation online, etc. Obviously, it does have to do with, you know, some of the bad things that Muslim, some Muslims do in, in you know, we, we have had terrorist incidents in Europe. There's no sense in whitewashing it. Um, and, um, and in some in some cases, you know, people are afraid, well, it's, you know, maybe an understandable fear. But we have, again, we have to uh, keep trying to put things into context and saying, you know, that obviously, you know, Muslims are victims as much as anyone else. Uh, the ma- the vast majority of Muslims in Europe are here for a better life. They're not here to create discord. Yes, there are some people who take advantage of that, but those are people on both sides, um, you know, for various reasons. And and the more that the majority come to get comes together, um, as they did in the Haram Mosque protest um, this past weekend, and push back against that. Um, I think, you know, we can get over these, you know, these public expressions of mistrust. David, in France, there's a debate about uh, the banning of the burqa. And they're already having national debates about French identity and what it Mm. means to be French. What do you think would happen in Britain if those sorts of debates happened? These are officially sanctioned debates. It's not like a crazy nutjob group on the far right saying, you know, we should have a national debate. This is the government saying we're going to have a national discussion about what it means. What do you think Brits would do, Muslim, non-Muslim, whatever? Well, I think the approach would be much more incremental, probably. I mean, in a sense, we had something like that after 7-7, where we had the uh, introduction of various government policies to counter extremism and so on. But we didn't, in in kind of true British style, we didn't have a grand forum or a a national conversation about it. It was was fairly incremental. Um, It was small steps and... It was working with lots of different groups. So I can't really see the kind of grand planned national debate, uh, certainly not the, 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 the kind of you know referendum-style politics that they have in Switzerland happening here. We're going to say goodbye to Europe and we're moving swiftly across the Atlantic to the White House where there's a new president and a new mood. Barack Obama, the man who sounds like he's Muslim but isn't, took office in January and within months had charmed the crowds in Cairo with a masterful and eloquent, if eventually hollow, bit of oratory. Here he is doing what he does best, talking. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. I am honoured 
to be in the timeless city of Cairo and to be hosted by two remarkable institutions. For over a thousand years, Ulazar has stood as a beacon of Islamic learning. And for over a century, Cairo University has been a source of Egypt's advancement. And together, you represent the harmony between tradition and progress. I'm grateful for your hospitality and the hospitality of the people of Egypt. And I'm also proud to carry with me the goodwill of the American people and a greeting of peace from Muslim communities in my country. Assalamu alaikum. Okay, it's a long speech, so let's just fast forward to President Obama's observation on how economic development and retaining a strong cultural identity can go hand in hand. Trade can bring new wealth and opportunities, but also huge disruptions and change in communities. In all nations, including America, this change can bring fear. Fear that because of modernity, we lose control over our economic choices, our politics, and most importantly, our identities, those things we most cherish about our communities, our families, our traditions, and our faith. But I also know that human progress cannot be denied. There need not be contradictions between development and tradition. Countries like Japan and South Korea grew their economies enormously while maintaining distinct cultures. The same is true for the astonishing progress within Muslim-majority countries from Kuala Lumpur to Dubai. In ancient times and in our times, Muslim communities have been at the forefront of innovation and education. And this is important because no development strategy can be based only upon what comes out of the ground, nor can it be sustained while young people are out of work. Many Gulf states have enjoyed great wealth as a consequence of oil, and some are beginning to focus it on broader development. But all of us must recognize that education and innovation will be the currency of the 21st century. Zahid, he said lots of things about Islam and Muslims, but do you think he got to those hard-to-reach areas, or was he preaching to the converted? Um, no, I think he did make an impact at the time. Um, I think since those early days, I think Muslims... like Which were lot... only like six months ago. Well, no, no, I'm, I'm, early days in his presidency, when everyone wanted to see what direction he was going to take regarding the Muslim world. Um, I mean, it's been about a year now, and I think a lot of Muslims feel uh, maybe he was being a bit patronizing because of the other decisions that he's made that have not lived up to sort of his side of the bargain, so to speak. You know, um, a lot of what he said was absolutely true in terms of what Muslims need to do to help improve their own society. Um, he did defend Muslim rights in a lot of ways, you know, especially pointedly with regards to Europe about what Muslims uh, should wear and shouldn't wear. I mean, they have, should have the right to wear whatever they want. Um, I mean, that was important coming from an American president where, you know, this type of issue about banning clothing and minarets is, it's simply not a discussion in, in America. It's just completely off the radar. Um, but, um, you know, having said that, I, I think, um, you know, we shouldn't use Obama as an excuse to not do the things that we need to do for ourselves. Um, and, um, you know, whether it comes to, you know, economic um, 
reform in Muslim countries, uh, human rights reform, uh, women's rights. These are things that we'll continue to have to tackle even after Obama's out of office. This is slightly unfair, but how is he different to George Bush, bearing in mind that he's sending troops into Afghanistan and he's flip-flopped on Gitmo and he hasn't really done much on Israel? It's It's not unfair at all. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think this is exactly the kind of things that disappoint a lot of his supporters, including myself. Um, I was very hopeful that there would be a real change after his election. And we saw signs of that. Now, whether there is some deeper politics involved or whether it's just delayed, I don't know. Uh, but so far, it's not moving as fast as I'd like. And I think the decision to send troops to Afghanistan is one example of that. Um, uh, I think a lot of people aren't in the mood for nuance right now. We're in the mood for dra- dras- some more drastic action, drastic dis- distancing from Bush. The Guantanamo uh, approach that he has been disappointing. Now, having said that, you know, do I still think there's hope? Yes, I do. I think that, you know, if if it's, if it's just taking longer than I'd expected, that's fine. You know, we, we'll have to, to deal with what we have. Um, mm. David, apart from persuading people not to blow themselves up and being mm. nice to oil-producing countries, what are the other advantages of reshaping relations within the Islamic world? Um, well, I think a lot of people expected Obama to, to bring in a, a, a change in tone. And I think the speech was very much part of that. You talked about hollow oratory. In a sense, all oratory is going to be hollow because as US president, there are so many concerns that you have to juggle and, uh, you know, the, the reality of situations is going to always overcome you to a certain extent. But I think just the fact that he's set himself the task of mending relations is very positive for many people around the world. I'll accept that, yeah. There's a new name for the war on terror. It's now called the Overseas Contingency Operation. But whatever it's called, the ripples are still felt far and wide. Sahid, you are having a bit of bother on the homegrown extremism front, aren't you? I mean, it used to be all about the Brits, and now you guys, you're just... Well, I think, you know, for a lot of Americans who felt a bit smug that that, uh, these sort of things don't happen here... Um, we have had a few incidents in America over the past few months uh, that have uh, left us a bit more reflective. You know, the Fort Hood shootings. Um, was the, he a gunman or was he a terrorist? He was a gunman. Okay. Like Columbine, like uh, like Virginia Tech. Mm. Um, in my view, mm. it's much more related to those than it is an international act of conspiracy. Has he been seen as a gunman rather than a terrorist by, um, by I think Americans generally? Largely, I think largely yes. I think legally yes, he has been. In my opinion, he his his mode of behavior is a criminal act, and it matches that of other gunmen uh, in similar cases, which were motivated more by emotional states and things like that uh, than any kind of worldwide conspiracy. In the UK, the real and present danger of homegrown terrorism has been with us for many, many years. The government has a ninety million pound counter extremism program, but it's been coming apart at the seams. We're going to hear Ed Hussain, who's the co-director and co-founder of the Quilliam Foundation, talking about prevent. Prevent or preventing violent extremism, as it's known, I think, in the jargon, is to ensure that the ideology that leads people to not killing themselves but also committing other people is challenged. Prevent is there also, and I think people won't say this openly, to identify where there is a real extremism stroke terrorism problem. And I deliberately conflate the two because I don't think extremism exists without terrorism and terrorism doesn't exist without extremism. They both need one another. And the the, the state is obsessed with gathering information. We know that from previous legislation, previous initiatives that this government has put in place. Here is a government initiative backed by millions of pounds and it's got access to tens of thousands of people's um, email addresses, phone numbers, etc., etc. 
isn't the government going to use it? Of course it is. And it should use it, and it should use it for the right purposes. Whether we, char- whether, whether we trust the government or not to do that is another debate, but in principle it should be using it to protect the nation's security. And that's what governments do. Yeah. When it comes down to Islamist terrorism, why are we obsessed with navel-gazing? Why can't we say they, they too are criminals, murderers, terrorists, acting in the name of a religion, and therefore a teacher at a university here in London or a person working at Tesco's in Shropshire, wherever they encounter people who articulate extremist views that provide the mood music to which suicide bombers dance, should not, not, should only, not, be, not, not only be challenged in, in, in a civic way, but handed over and alerted to the local authorities. David, what's wrong with Prevent? Well, I think, you know, Prevent started off with good intentions. It was the government's reaction to this horrific terror attack. And what do you do as a government? You, you make a plan, you make a policy. So, you know, I mean, it had plenty of problems and I think it, it became seen, certainly in the Muslim community, as, uh, well, the groups that were taking Prevent money mm. came to be seen as stooges. But also um, there was a, a perception that it was a bit about kind of shop your neighbour um, and tell on people who you suspect might be involved in extremist activities and that it was about scrutiny and about monitoring and about Big Brother. And I think that's the perception that mounted over the years of Prevent. John Denham seems to be now furiously kind of drawing away from that. Um, Zahid, is there anything right with Prevent? Prevent, protect, patronise, pursue, well, whatever they call it? I mean, I think Provoke? Da- da- well, David's right in the sense that, you know, it, it may have started with good intentions, but, I mean, this huge elephant in the room, which is the, the connection with government funds. I mean, this is a British... Approach. Do you get government funding? No. Okay. And that's actually, it's good, it's good that you mentioned that. We've been offered money by a lot of people really? for, for what we to do, do governments. To, no, to do what we do. Uh, to media. No, no. To do, <laughs> no, for, for, for media work. Okay. We've rejected all of it. For the, good. For the very Excellent. reason. I'd applaud, yeah, but well, I I'm, might blow I'm the microphone. starving media guy. But, um, but for that very reason is that, you know, um, whatever good can come from that money, we find it very difficult to overcome the uh, mistrust uh, that the people who you're trying to reach will have of you. And um, I think at some level, the government should have known better. I mm. mean, um, I, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, like people like the Radical Middle Way, great groups, great people, friends of mine, that have taken government money. Mm. And they get accused of this all the time, even though the work they're doing is very good. Um, now, if you, you know, What if do you, they actually do? Well, I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's the promotion of you know islamic scholars and and um and and events Oy. things like yeah well i mean well i mean you have to look at it in the framework of what else is out there i mean yeah. what is what is there in well, the public this lead, you know, Eli, uh, leads me on to my next question david what are the alternatives to prevent apart from more surveillance well it's a very tricky one i mean just going back to this idea of what what do governments do when faced with a challenge like like that i mean what uh, there's enormous amount of pressure on them from the media, from people, from think tanks, to law spend money on this. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, okay. So law enforcement is the alternative, I suppose. But no, but, I mean, no, but I'm not. I'm not saying it's alternative. It's like no matter what is done, there will be some negative repercussions. Of yeah. it. I mean, the law enforcement approach has had criticism. You know, the funding approach has had criticism. It is. I agree with you. What, what is it a government to do without being criticised? Is uh, it something that actually governments can't influence to a great extent? I'm just wondering. You know, I mean, that's these, been the American approach. I yeah, mean, but I then mean, what no, has filled that vacuum? Has has, has there have there just has been no be programs? Independent grassroots organisations that are assisted but not funded. David, 
I think it's quite a, uh, an effective way of making an organisation irrelevant very rapidly yeah. to give it lots of government money because then ordinary Muslims start to kind of factor it out of the equation. Oh, it's it's just an arm of new labour or mm. something like that. So, I was really shocked to realise how many people were involved in a foreign office programme. They have, um, it's, there was something called I Am The West, but it was a, it was an offshoot of that where they were getting sort of high-profile British Muslims to go to places like yeah. Pakistan and Afghanistan and the West Bank and talk about how brilliant life was in the West as a Muslim and that, you know, you didn't need to feel aggrieved on our account and we weren't going to feel aggrieved on your account and there is no conflict between Islam and the West. And when I looked at mm. the people who had taken part, I thought, I know these people, I know these yeah. people. And it really caused a problem for me because I thought... I'm looking at you in a different way. And it's amazing to be able to go to those places and, you know, go to Gaza and go to the Northwest Frontier Province and go to all of these places of conflict and meet real people who are on the ground and find out about their lives. Yeah. But all the all the time you've got the government in the background and I just thought, you're stooges and this isn't good and I don't like you for doing this. And if you want to do it for charity and NGO work, that's fine. Well, but It shouldn't be an either-or situation. I mean... Um I mean, I know people who, who actually, um, at the request of the State Department, will talk about what they do or, you know, life in America for Muslims mm. uh, around the world. And, and that's fine. I mean, I think that when, it, when, it, when you are limited in what you can talk about, um, when you don't have the freedom to, to talk, you know, for example, we, we do that for the State Department quite a bit. Um, but we have a media voice that doesn't pull any punches for other issues. We're not stifled in any way. We don't take any money. Is it better for Muslims to be inside the tent are we pissing out? Barbarians or at the gate. Outside gates, or the are tent we pissing in. Let's mix our metaphors here. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think the question of government intervention in these kind of issues is very, very problematic. You're going to have unintended consequences. You're not going to be able to control the way things go with various groups or people's reactions to them. So the idea that you can promise to solve the problem of radicalization by throwing money at it and even if your plan is exquisitely worked out and has you know lots and lots of bullet points as the list i've got in front of me has from the home office website it could just be money down the drain Zahid Amanullah and David Chariot Madari, thank you very much for coming in. I hope you enjoyed the mince pies. I didn't have any because they are 258 calories each. Mm, yummy calories. They were <laughs> You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was presented by me, Riaz Atbat, and produced by Jason Phipps. Until next year, Jazakallah for listening and Wa alaikum as-salam. Mm.